You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Emma McGowan, a sex educator, sex tech journalist, and a sex education columnist at Bustle. Please join me in welcoming tonight's speakers. We have Andrea Barica, the co-founder and CEO of O School, a judgment-free multimedia platform for learning about sexuality and pleasure in video, live streams, video chats, and more. Maisha Battle, a certified sex and dating coach, and the host of the sex-positive podcast, Down for Whatever. And Liz Klinger, <laughs> co-founder and CEO of Lioness, a sexual wellness company whose latest developments have put them at the forefront of the intersection between sexual self-experimentation and technology. Smart vibrator. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very smart vibrator. <laughs> Uh, tonight, we're here to talk about many topics, including their experiences in the sex tech industry and the future of women's health and pleasure. So thanks for being here tonight. Yeah. Thanks, Emma. All right. So let's start with the basics. So sex tech is one of those terms that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I think of it as like that famous quote about porn. You know it when you see it, right? So we think we all have our we know it. So let's start with that. What's what's sex tech? Well, first of all, it is a massive underserved industry right now. Sexual wellness, which is paired with sex tech, is projected to be 100, up to $122 billion by 2026. It's a little niche thing called sex that some people choose to do in, in their life. It's pretty big. Um, sex tech, I think, refers to a lot of the innovative technologies and business models that have come out, and like Liz and Lioness and um, so many different mediums. And uh, yeah, it's one of the fastest growing categories. So um, we can really look to that in who is innovating the way that people will have sex will, you know, um, affect their human experience around sex. That's how I think of it. Great. Yeah. For me, I guess, so I see sex tech sort of similar in the way that I see sexual health and that sex is sex tech is sex technology and sexual health is sexual health. And in some ways for me, I sort of struggle with that term because I wish that sex tech could be seen more as tech you know, and it's sex, but it's also technology. And just like with sexual health, I wish that we saw sexual health more as sexual, sexual health as a form of health, as a basic human need. So I think part of what made sex tech the term that it is now is because we have these companies that have been coming up, especially in the last couple of years, like with mine and Andrea's, and we've had these different uh, hurdles that we face in terms of advertising, in terms of uh, CES, which is, I think, in part why we, we are here today. And also just with, with fundraising and just basic things that for other companies can be easier, not as much of a thought to, but for sex tech, there's some different sort of stigmas that are attached to it that make it a little more difficult to do sometimes. So that's kind of how I see sex tech in terms of like the broader framework of why sex tech exists even. Yeah, and for me, um, I see sex tech as sort of this broad category of a way that we're integrating technology into our sex lives. And whether that's through sex education um, or sexual experimentation, how we're finding our partners, as well as how we're getting our information. So for me, hosting a podcast, I still feel like that technology has allowed me to share the stories of, uh, you know, sexual diverse cast of characters that other people, you know, may not experience in their life. So, you know, using technology, people are walking around every day listening to an experience that brings them closer to an understanding of how broad sexuality is. So I think of it as a sort of like very broad category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maisha, I think I'm, I'm closer to you probably. I generally describe sex tech as all the ways that technology intersects with our intimate lives. So starting with finding our partners or even pornography or innovative products like Liz's or platforms like yours. Um, but I love that. I love that perspective, Liz, of the obstacles that everyone in the industry faces, because I do think that's a reason 
a lot of individuals and companies have really rallied together under the sex tech banner, right? Yeah, you don't see like diabetes tech or liver tech or kidney tech or, you know, (laughs) you don't see that being a broad term that we talk about. Yeah. Well, we saw the same thing with reproductive health. Mm -hmm. Like, You know how long it took for us to get a good breast pump? Like way too long. Like babies weren't a new invention, right? There, like people really hated breast pumps for decades, and it was only recently that we saw femtech. Like, um, in 2016 was you know the amount of funding that was going into um, femtech or reproductive health is a term I think that uh, is is the section of that of that world. And the reason we opt to label it out is exactly what Liz is saying. It's because it was underfunded, underserved for so long. Exactly. Yep. And that also points out that, like, the fact that we have to call it femtech, (laughs) like, that says a lot about the, you know, what we prioritize when we're thinking about investing in technology. Who are we investing for and what are the purposes that are being used? You know, it's it's mostly been a male-dominated field. On a personal level, what brought each of you into this field? You want to start, Liz? Sure, yeah. So I... so. I grew up in a slightly more conservative background in Wisconsin, and um, I love Wisconsin, but like the most of the country, uh, we just don't really talk about sex. It's not really a thing that you really talk about or get great education on. And in some ways, it was kind of, well, ironically, it made me more fascinated about the topic. And so I started exploring it through my art, which I have some funny stories there, but that's a whole other thing. We can talk about that if people are curious, but... Uh, from there, uh, after college, I started doing a thing called passion parties, which is basically selling different sex toys, dildos, lubricants, you know, everything under the sun to people and going to their houses and throwing parties. And what happened there was, I'm here I am, this like 20-something, I don't know that much really, but people from all walks of life and all ages would start coming to me and asking the most like these very intimate questions and some things that they had never talked about with anybody before, not even their doctors because they were uncomfortable with it. Or sometimes the doctors kind of said that that's not really my field, my area, Uh, not their partner sometimes, not their friends, except when you threw this party and you're peddling around dildos and you're, you know, you're sipping your wine. And then that's the space where you start maybe feeling comfortable talking about it. And I, for me, it was like, wow, there's, there's a huge need there. Like everyone else has questions and that's great. Cause I'm not the only weird one, thank God. But then it's also like, these are all questions that we should be able to explore and should be able to self-experiment and learn more about pleasure as it pertains to our own lives and our own bodies. And there wasn't anything that really, like any product or service out there, especially at the time, that took people from A to B in terms of helping people like learn more about themselves. So that's where I started seeing something like Lioness fitting in, and that's what helped me get started with doing Lioness. Yeah, for me, it's pretty similar in terms of our origin. I also grew up in a conservative community in the Bible Belt in Louisiana. Um, a good example of this would be for our sex education in middle school. Um, we had a panel of concerned mothers come to the school and review the textbook that we were going to be using. And they sharpied through, you know, they went through page by page together, like probably the night before we were supposed to get sex education and uh, sharpie through anything that they thought was inappropriate. So, of course, all of us were, like, holding it up to the light to see, like, what they thought was so salacious that they had to black out with Sharpie marker. And I thought, this is crazy. This is so insane. Like, somebody wrote this textbook, right? They must have some information that they thought was important to include in a middle school sex education program. It probably wasn't great. Um, but, you know, it was probably it was better than what we got. Um, and... I got trained as a peer advocate in middle school as well, thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm definitely somebody who people can trust and confide in. That's something I know about my personality. And this is, it seems like a good thing for me to do. 
And lo and behold, people were coming to me at that age with questions about their sexuality. So the peer advocate program was essentially like at any time someone could request me by name and pull me out of class, which was awesome. And, you know, like I would be their confidant. And of course, I was trained to escalate any issues that were of, you know, personal harm or concern for that person's well-being. But mostly people were like, you know, should I let my boyfriend do certain things? Um, is this okay? Like, is making out something that is enough? Or should we be going further as, mm. at this point in our relationship? And we're talking, you know, 11 to 13-year-olds talking about these things. So um, that was sort of my ex- exposure in the beginning. Uh, and then I have a circuitous path that I took to becoming a sex coach, which was having a whole other career. But I studied sex education um, in college at San Francisco State. And then I uh, uh, ended up getting my master's in New York at the New School in psychology, thinking I was going to become a sex therapist. Um, but sex coaching just felt like the right fit for me because it is so affirming. Um, we don't pathologize. We don't uh, label anything as a deviant behavior. We look at what is actually going on for the person here and now, and where do they want to be in the future? And we try to create a timeline and a course of action for them to be their fullest, healthiest sexual self. Um, so that's what I've been doing since I was 13 and uh, what I will probably be doing until I can't function anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so I actually started in a, another really sexy space. I started my career building accounting software. <laughs> uh, real sex and money. That's a two yeah. plus shame. I've worked in both, right? So I built accounting software and you know, we did the kind of normal tech software journey. Uh, then I was on the other side of the table and I was a venture capitalist. I worked as an investor at a global seed fund for two years. And it was it was really here that I for me sexuality was so shameful and so private. I am the child of Filipino immigrants, so my entire childhood sex talk was you cannot have sex at all until you're married, right? Then you're nodding like you got that talk. Just that's not for you. Like there's this thing called sex, but it's not for you until you're married, right? And of course, like homosexuality is wrong, and I was so queer. I knew I was queer when I was like five, but I just had to stuff that all in. And successfully was able to repress all of my sexuality through just being really into my career, right? Which brings us to being a VC. And one thing I noticed was there was no conversations about investing in this category. And as an investor where you're, you know, I'm talking about the internet all day, I'm secretly struggling because I was in the closet, you know, of course, still in, in this part of my life as a professional. And I really became obsessed, obsessed with this question, which is what on the internet exists really between Planned Parenthood and Pornhub. <laughs> it just became my obsession. Uh, to, to the, and, and of course, I started talking to other investors and why don't, why don't we invest? And Femtech was just starting to, you know, Eda Tin was doing Clue and you started to see a breast pump hackathon at MIT. And I was like, this is the next frontier. There's money everywhere. Why aren't we going into it? And then I started learning about the real reason we can't have nice things in sex tech. And that is LPs of venture capital funds and the VCs, um, Visa, MasterCard, and like all the structural uh, systems. And at that time, I, I just, the obsession really ate at me. And one day I was, I just realized I was just building prototypes on the weekends. And I took the plunge again to, um, to really explore what that space in the middle of these things could be, you know, and if this is wellness, which I live that to be true. And I did come out and I did kind of come to my sexuality late in life. And that explosion of power like that, that you have to go around and people are like, you're just unstoppable. Like, what are you doing? And you have to make up reasons. Like I have this green juice recipe. So, you know, and really what happened is I had found out about my sexuality and it just, you know, really, it changed my life and I became really set. And I think a lot of us come to it is that you feel the transformation and then you think, how can I scale the transformation? And that's why I'm in tech, because that's where really fast transformation happens. And I wish that the structural system surrounding tech actually supported it because the only thing we should be able to rely on investors to do is be greedy 
and they're not being greedy here, <laughs> right? And we have to um, fight against all those structural systems. Yeah. So orgasms or green juice, you know, mm-hmm. is she, is she forward with it? Yeah. So speaking of issues in the space, uh, one of the things that's kind of sparked Commonwealth Club's interest in this topic was uh, the rejection of an innovative vibrator at CES last year. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who don't spend half your life reading sex tech articles like me, um, there was a vibrator called Osei from a company called Laura DiCarlo that focuses on giving people with vaginas what they call blended orgasms, so clitoral and vaginal orgasm at the same time. It was given an award for being a very innovative product at CES. The award was rescinded. We made a lot of noise about it. The reward was given back. And then they were like invited back this year or something, right? It continues. It continues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that event, Laura DiCarlo did a great job really kind of activating the community and creating a lot of buzz about that event. But it's just one of many um, that people in this field face. So Liz, I know that you've had some obstacles getting attention, getting advertising, getting kind of acceptance for your product. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> there's a lot there. I think I'll focus on CES because that's the most timely one. Uh, so one of the funny things about the Laura DiCarlo and CES was that pretty much the exact same thing happened to us last year with CES, where we applied for space in their startup area, and we were recommended by Stanford's Accelerator and a couple of other people because we're like, you know, we know that we do sex stuff. You know, you need a little extra boost of something. And we were rejected. And so when I started, like, doing some back-channeling and asking a couple people about why and what was going on, uh, one of the people who was talking to some of the CES folks said that, well, basically... The lioness, it's, it's innovative. It has new technology. You know, it's, it has, it check marks everything, but they don't want to deal with this topic with adult products, which is kind of ironic when you kind of dig into it. There's, they have VR porn there and, you know, there's some other, there's some like very, there's a lot of like weird overlaps and, um, hypocrisies there that are kind of another topic. But yeah, so I then started asking around to other companies in our space. Uh, particularly ones that also made stuff. And I learned that this has been happening for years. Like, there have been, at least for about the last decade, all of these companies that make products for people with vaginas have been rejected by CES. And I'm like, the heck? Like, you know, this this has been happening in the background the entire time. And the thing, the reason why that's important is because... It, institutions like the CES, they're, they're global, they're, they're huge. They're, they're basically one of the institutions that says what's new and what's hot for technology and for innovation. And by basically not letting any of these products in the sex tech space, or most of them, especially for people with vaginas on the floor, then People don't know what's going on. People don't know what's hot. Like there's no, the opportunity isn't really highlighted and isn't there. And it's stuff like that, that we go through in the, in the sex tech space every day, be it something with CES or with investing or even with opening a bank account. And it's in some ways, like it's, um, it's little hurdles, you know, like each of these are just like little bumps and it's like, oh, that's kind of annoying. I got turned down by this bank, look for another bank, you know, whatever, but over time, you have all these different hurdles that come up, and it becomes something significant over time. But that being said, I don't want to be completely negative, Nancy, on it because you know it's it's a great space. I'm you know I'm working in this space, have been for years now. Uh, for us, um, well, you're still it's still possible to be successful despite these challenges. So for our company, we've been profitable for for a little while now, which is awesome because. I don't have to worry about keeping the lights on. Like, uh, like so in terms of like startups and runway, I'm, I'm not going down. I'm not worrying about, oh, how do we keep this company going? Now I'm like, okay, great. I'm able to start figuring out how, what else can we do? What, you know, what are the, you know, some of these like longer term dreams that we thought were dreams at first, how do we make that a reality? So it's, it's great. Like there's ways of like succeeding in this space and there's definitely many others who have, uh, but 
yeah, it's well, one, one success of yours. Linus is one of the few companies that has managed to get public advertisement. Mm, yeah. So, so Liz's company, Linus, um, had worked very closely with Muni to work out, uh, advertisements that they would accept on bus shelters around the city. Um, other companies, like for example, there's a big controversy in New York with the MTA, a bunch of companies there, Unbound, Dame, um, other kind of women oriented, Companies have been banned from advertising in the MTA where there's also ads of deflated cactuses for erectile dysfunction drugs. Um, but yet the MTA doesn't allow ads for sexual products. So yeah. So I mean, that's, but yeah, I've, I've, I think you're one of the, maybe the only one, do you know who's, who's had public advertisement? Uh, I think Dame had some, also some bus uh-huh. stop-ish ads in New York, yeah. not MTA. Not so MTA. They're different different transit authorities and there was another one in Canada on the cool. highway. So there's, there's a feel more. I got to wrap <laughs> Oakland. There's a feel yeah. more ad um, publicly yep. in Oakland. Yeah. Feel more. actually here in the audience. Oh, there's, oh. yeah. I, I just had to call out. <laughs> yeah, I see, I see feel more's ad and this has major repercussions. You know, um, Viagra ads have been able to be shown on TV for, I see some nods, right? You're like, why is Viagra? Okay. Why is Cialis? Okay. Every Super Bowl, you're just like, what's Viagra going to, Viagra going to do? You know, it's something we look forward <laughs> to. And as soon, it is so gendered and so based on, you know, what, what reproductive organs you have, um, and that is why today we do have an orgasm gap. You know, right now people with, with uh, straight women are having the fewest orgasms than any other group, um, according to the, the data that we've got. And so these things have major repercussions and especially it, it all seeps back into why so many, so few, I should say, sex tech companies have been able to reach massive scale, right? Because without, you know, sustainable ac- acquisition channels and funding, um, we want, we haven't seen the scale that the Viagra movements and things like that have had. And that has huge societal effects for people's sexuality. I loved what you said earlier about like really investors should be focused on making a profit and like they're missing out on 50% of our human population has vulvas and might be interested in improving their sex life in some way, shape or form, right? Whether it's improving orgasm, having more orgasm, lubrication, there's so many points of intervention. And yet the struggle is we have to call it what it is. This is misogyny. And when you were talking about success in this industry, like there are so few representations of what success is in the classical sense of I have a company It is my sole form of income. When you look at women who are founders in this space, you see that most of us have to have side jobs. Mm -hmm. Most of us have to have personal investments that we come to the table with just to even get our foot through the door. And that is a struggle that we have to identify as a gendered experience. This is misogyny. (laughs) Like this is not, this is sexism. This is like favoritism, call it what you will. But I think it's really important that we put a name to it. Um, that's just what it is. I think another really important point too, when we're, especially when we're talking about advertising is the distinction between men's sexual needs being health, right? Like it is, it's important for a man's health to be able to get an erection, but for a woman to have lubrication or have an orgasm, that's somehow not health. Right. Okay. That somehow pleasure isn't part of health. When Only it, right. health if it's about having babies. Babies, right? It's like babies make babies. it health. It's like we got to protect the baby making capabilities. <laughs> but as soon as you want to enjoy a sexual act, it's like, oh no, 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 no. That's novelty. That's niche. Yeah, right. The toy. Right. And and what I think is so important is that, like we said, we bring it back into the health conversations. What's hard about that structurally is the average medical school student gets less than 10 hours on average of sex ed. Like I've held a 3D printed clit in front of audiences of doctors in medical schools or, you know, doctors to be and having had people not recognize it. So it's so structural, right? It's, it's not just the business world and the VC world. It's in the medical world and the public health world that sees this issue as, are you preventing STIs? Are you preventing teen pregnancy? Oh, you're not doing any of those things. 
then suddenly what you are doing becomes somehow bad, immoral, shameful. And I think that's like the unspoken hurt from the industry is we know that we are changing people's lives for the better, but we are treated as if we are doing something that is inherently not good. And that I think is uh, also not spoken about Mm -hmm. is um, just doctors don't, don't sometimes know. Yeah, no, I, uh, in my certification, which was done at SFISI here in San Francisco, so, and it's completely volunteer run and donation based. I got 60 hours of training. So just to give you an idea of the difference between, you know, what medical doctors are getting. I want to jump on this as well, because not only are people not getting the training, and this includes marriage and family therapists, people that you go to that you trust to talk to you about very intimate and personal details of their lives. What are the top reasons that people get divorced? Money and sex. Like, Money and sex, and you're you're going to a you're going to a practitioner who may have received one to three hours of sexual training. Um, so my program as a sex coach, 220 hours, and uh, we actually so I ended up started like working for Sex Coach U, which is the program that certified me, and they opened Sexology U with this idea that there must be helping professionals who want to expand their knowledge. And they don't want to go through the process of becoming certified through ASECT, which is a certifying body. Um, So they wanted to offer this credential. And nobody wants it. (laughs) They didn't go to school for that. That's not what they wanted to do. They didn't want to get into rooms with people and talk about sex. That's what we want to (laughs) do. That's what we want to get paid to do. And speaking of what we do... um, Maisha, I know that one topic that has come up in your work recently is digisexuality. Yeah. Can you explain what that is for our audience? Yeah. So uh, I was first introduced to the concept of digisexuality by Dr. Holly Richmond, who has actually made quite a niche for herself as a consultant in the tech world. Um, basically, Dr. Holly has identified a burgeoning, although she would say it's always existed, sexuality that is... Uh, basically, like your sexuality is moderated by technology in some way, shape, or form. So I, uh, I had the pleasure of, of interviewing her when I worked for Sex Coach U, and I also wrote a piece about digisexuality for Ravishly, which is an Oakland-based um, publication, feminist publication. But um, what I find really amazing about this is thinking about how people have moderated their sexuality through technology, like through the ages. Like I imagine like someone on a typewriter, like writing the most salacious, like sexy thing, just being like, yeah, and they don't care. They don't care (laughs) what happens when that letter gets sent. It's the process of like using something in this like sexual exchange and it's not between two people. So what she's looking at and what she consults on a lot and what I find fascinating too is that more and more we might see this as a dominant uh, sexuality, an emerging sexuality where people prefer uh, this experience of having a moderated sexual experience with, with another person or with a piece of technology that is trained to respond to them in a sexual way, which is what we're seeing a lot of in the, uh, in the tech world, in the sex tech world. Yeah. I think I, um, I know when I was a teenager, there were a lot of scare pieces about like lipstick parties. You guys remember lipstick parties? Everybody was scared of that and something with armbands. I don't remember. Um, but basically the gist of it was the teenagers are having too much sex. They're having too much sex with too many people too soon, too often, too, 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 too much. Um, and now it feels like a lot of the the scare pieces are the teenagers are not having sex, right? Um, the world is coming to an end now because teenagers aren't doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's been deemed the sex recession. Um, and I wondered if you could start us off on that one, Andrea. <laughs> yeah. So uh, right now there's some studies in the CDC and other journals that are showing that between 1991 and 2017, the rate of high school students who have had sex has gone down from 54% to 40%. So it's like a 14% decrease. So that's one data point. The other one is that people in their early 20s are two and a half times uh, less, like, are having two and a half times less sex than people of the same age from the previous generations. Right? And we did check that like oral sex stayed the same. So I was like, what do they mean by intercourse? 
millennials are twice as likely to identify as LGBTQ right now. So, you know, maybe there's alternate sex happening. And what I didn't get confirmation of is whether that includes masturbation. Like maybe people are jacking off more. Is that so bad? You know, that's but one of the theories. That's one of the theories I think yeah. is that people are having, right. And so we can, let's complicate that. Um, I would also add that we are at an all time low of sex education in the, in this country right now. In the last couple decades, the rate of sex ed, I mean, fewer than half of all high schools in this country are offering any sex ed at all. So if you went to school in the 90s, 80% of schools at that point at least did contraception. So that is effectively gone. So that, you know, with all of the kinds of new technologies, um, porn, the competition for free time, plus just an all-time low of sex ed, not so surprising that we are seeing um, these effects. And I want to point out, too, that a lot of what folks are engaging with now, even sexting, if you have a partner who you're not engaging with in a physically sexual relationship, but you're having this digitally moderated sexual experience with them, like your brain is still having those same reactions as it would to physical sex. Like you can still get the rush of endorphins. You can certainly engage in solo sex while you're sexting or video chatting or what have you and not have, you know, any type of sex, um, sex, sex, in-person sex. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to think about this as like, <laughs> a way that people will be creating their their sexualities or preferring that that's that's where they'd rather be because you know they don't see a benefit maybe to putting themselves out there in the way that you know those of us who are over 25 right now might might really enjoy um and have enjoyed since we were teens so yeah it's it's an interesting transition period well, I th- yeah, we'll and I think see. another another part of um, sort of this digisexuality idea that we haven't talked about is the whole industry of cam girls, right? Mm-hmm. Like the whole moving sex work online in that way. Um, I just thought of it because you're talking about safety, right? Like that's a big a big thing that people talk about is it's much safer to be on the screen than to meet a client in person, um, mm-hmm. and seems to be fulfilling a lot of people's needs on all sides. So, um, so that's kind of like the more positive part. But Maisha, in your work as a coach, do you find that many of your clients' intimacy problems are related to technology or is that something that doesn't come up? It comes up. It comes up in various forms. Um, The biggest technology issue that I see, honestly, as a sex and dating coach is people on dating apps who wish they didn't have to be. (laughs) That's the biggest technology conundrum at the moment. It's just like, why the fuck do I have to be on this right now? But that's Um, a dating conundrum. Yeah, I know, but it's it's related to sex. and And I have clients who, I have definitely had clients who are virgins in their 30s, who are like, how do I do this? How do I meet? How do I even meet a person to hook up with? Mm. And so this is the main channel that people are using to meet other people to have sex. And I think one of the things that, again, as I'll mention, that the brain doesn't necessarily distinguish all that much between the interactions you're having online and the gratification you receive from that experience. It doesn't it's, you know, yes, as we, as we experience it, we know that there's a qualitative difference, but for someone who maybe is hesitant to, you know, meet someone in real life to make that leap into a sexual relationship, they can get a certain percentage and a high enough percentage of that gratification from these safer, uh, environments online. So I help people move from that space of like, what is this? It's a flirtation. They ghosted me. And I'm like, you haven't even met. So it's like, I don't even know if that's ghosting. But, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you need to like meet someone before you can be like, they left me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but so, so many people are having that experience, right? So um, that's the biggest technology conundrum. The other one is that, you know, technology does drive a wedge between couples. You know, couples are spending more time side by side in bed on their phones you know, more time doing that than they are actually having sex. And, um, you know, that's why I advocate for device-free bedrooms. Um, that includes oh, TV. The, the groans <laughs> of shock for you guys. TV, laptop, wow. <laughs> out of the room, out of the room. I'm a big proponent of that. Um, but I think that a lot of people feel in struggle with their partner's relationships to technology. Mm. 
um, whether that's porn, uh, why are they looking at this type of porn? I have, you know, uh, moral uh, issues with the type of porn they're watching. Some of them just want to know that there's a different type of porn, so I recommend feminist porn to them. Um, and yeah, I think that there's there's a struggle with trying to understand what these things are. Some of it is even just like social media, um, having social media be a presence in your relationship and sometimes an unwanted presence in your relationship when it comes to maybe flirtatious behavior with previous partners or people from work. Um, so these things are all, whether we like it or not, they're, they're part of our new reality. They're part of our relationships. They're part of how we build relationships and how we are trying to understand how to relate to one another. And I think we haven't fully grasped as a society, how do we talk about this? Um, there's certainly not a lot of conversations like this where we can actually say like, well, you know, this is how you talk about this. This is a worthy space um, to investigate and to get uncomfortable talking to your partner about um, sex and what kind of sex you want to be having and how you can enhance your sex life. Um, those are all scary things. And so if it's already scary for you to have a conversation about sex, then it's going to be doubly as hard for you to have a tough conversation about how your partner is engaging with their relationship with pornography. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Yeah, and I think I think that um, as you were talking, I was really thinking about the fact that we don't have a language to talk about these issues yet. Yeah. So that's really what you're doing, probably what a lot of educators on O School are doing, right? Like, how do you talk to your partner about social media and how they interact with people on Instagram is making you feel a certain kind of way. Like you feel a little bit silly. It's all these new words like breadcrumbing. Yeah. <laughs> Heard of this? Plus all of that. It's like ghosting, <laughs> but it's different. I'm learning yeah. a lot. And I think just to, to reinforce everything Maisha is saying, which is spot on, it's just that people don't accept themselves or what they desire in this society. And so, so much of education, like we educate as a company at O School, but a lot of what we have to help people do is unlearn things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you said that the, you know, all the kind of shameful like sex ed lessons i had the virginity flower you know where it's like you're this perfect flower and if you when you have sex like they smash the flower and they're like no one will want you no husband will want you when you're this flower and there's many versions of this there's tape there's a snickers gum. bar gum, gum the spit out chewed up, gum. chewed up gum and like how does this make people feel uh when they experience sexual assault like everything that's bad for straight people gets life-threatening when you're in these other communities like trans like mm -hmm. the fact that our doctors don't know about basic you know s sexual and gender identity identity issues it just these these issues with um the way that parents i always say that our children's shame is more uh, excuse me our, our children's safety is more important than adult shame um because we are also in a world where with me too and everything like that these are all related you know and this uh is frustrating but also i've lived it you know it took me i i did not feel comfortable talking about sex myself until i was way late into my 20s and you know, I'd started a, a company before I saw myself naked. I tell people, you know, and that's, that's how powerful those flower demonstrations are. They stick with you forever. Mm -hmm. You have to work with someone like Maisha for years. Like I did, you know, um, to, to overcome it. Yeah. I find the same thing with sexual health education. I'm constantly having to erase the images of STIs that people were shown in high school yeah. mm -hmm. being like, that's very advanced herpes guys. Like it's okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so <laughs> let's switch gears a little bit. Um, Liz, some of the most interesting work you've done with lioness is so for those of you who don't know how lioness works, it has, and please correct me if I get this wrong, has biofeedback sensors so that when a person orgasms, they can chart it on a graph. Like you can literally see like how you're right. Yeah, you can see see your orgasm. You can see your orgasm. You can see the changes over time. Yeah, from trying different things, which which is what I'm getting into. So <laughs> one of the, one of the most interesting trials that you've or like people have done with lioness um, are the effects of cannabis on orgasm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this is fun. This is super food. fun. This is why I love lioness. <laughs> so yeah, so we 
Oh gosh, where do I start here? Uh, so, so yeah, we've, we've had a, a lot of people try cannabis with lioness and see the different effects or sometimes not that much effect, depending on their own experience of pleasure. And it's been so popular that we've started doing different projects. Some that I can talk about, some that I can't talk about just yet, but stay tuned in a month or so. Maybe, hopefully. Uh, but one of the things that we can talk about that's one of the more interesting things we've seen is for people who, so people who are, who tend to be one and done type people, if you have cannabis, uh, we've seen in terms of our, like in terms of the data, uh, people being more likely to have multiple orgasms with the help of cannabis uh, versus if they didn't have cannabis. And this is from these groups, of, these projects of, with volunteers of people who are participating and trying different cannabis products. And it's a lot of fun. I recommend it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not for, it's not, it won't happen for everybody. Uh, there's, you know, there's a huge variation of how you're affected by different things. And there's, you know, a lot of different factors there. And there's still a lot more to learn and study to really understand that. But I think it's pretty cool to see something like, like data like that starting to come back because it's not the sort of research that we've seen, like, I mean, with research with alcohol and like sexual arousal, sexual response, it's kind of the opposite. So it's pretty cool to see cannabis being like that. And then in terms of uh, one other thing to mention in terms of, um, uh, so another fun thing is basically uh, orgasm pattern. So this is like the pelvic floor pattern that you experience. It's the same for everybody, no matter whether you have a penis or whether you have a vagina. So if you're a man or a woman, however you identify, your orgasm is going to be a pattern of pelvic floor contractions, which is really... So how we found out about that? So my co-founder, she ended up writing a blog post about how she used two lionesses, one vaginally, one anally, to measure the pelvic floor response. And the data, you can see it online. It's basically the same. And then we took it a step further, and she and one of her cis guy friends, they each tried the lioness and compared the data, and it's the same pattern of pelvic floor movements. So the implications of that for me are like are really exciting because you're like, okay, we've, we've seen these orgasms, like quote-unquote male orgasm and female orgasm as such different things, but really at the end of the day, we're really like the there's some of the biomechanics of it where we're pretty we're the same we're similar or we're the same and something like that is really awesome to see because we haven't you know been able to talk about stuff like that and i'm hoping that this sort of technology uh, we're starting to have different researchers and even some biotech companies approach us to use this sort of technology in studies and recruit participants to better understand how their work uh, affect sexual response. Uh, we're excited to see stuff like that because although we're, I mean, we do, we work with data and we do these cool articles at the end of the day, we want to be able to have this technology enable researchers to do their jobs and for people to develop better products in this space. And I think amazing. another thing that you guys have done. So, so, uh, masters and Johnson sort of created the first, explanation of how an orgasm works, right? And I feel like you guys are finding new explanations and new types of orgasm in a way that hasn't been done since then, which is really cool. Like, haven't you found that there's a series of patterns, right? Yeah. So it's like, I'm kind of doing these like waves. So yeah, we've seen, so in classical orgasm is this specific pattern of pelvic floor contractions. So it's like, if you want to get really nerdy about it, it's one to two hertz. And uh, so it like it kind of does its thing. You'll see it on the graph. You can see the length of orgasm. You know, you can see it. It's different depending on a whole bunch of different things. You can start tracking and seeing like what makes me have a longer orgasm or a stronger orgasm or a more interesting orgasm. And yeah, it's and then there's also some folks who like they see and identify their orgasm as a slightly different looking pattern, be it like there's more of this buildup. There's still like, I'm doing this backwards. So, you know, <laughs> you have this. And then for some people you have kind of this, like we call it sort of an avalanche where there's this like squeezing more and more like getting tighter. And then there's a sort of release downwards. And then uh, there's even a few other folks who have sort of this volcano pattern uh, where it's <laughs> instead of this wave, you see it more as this like, just this large thing, this large, like, you know, up and down on the graph, which could be from 
partly the pattern. We're, you know, we're trying to look more into this, um, but it could be the pattern. It could be the uh, way that they're moving their muscles. But there's a lot of different factors there. But yeah, there's you can see a lot of these different nuances and start understanding how your own body works specifically. So if you're an ocean wave and you've been thinking orgasms are like this huge explosion, it could just be that you're an ocean wave and you're <laughs> you're having a great time, but you just don't know it. Uh, you know, versus like for some folks who are more of this like huge explosion and they're like, oh, I've heard it's like this sort of waves of pleasure. It goes on and on and on. And what am I missing out on? It's like, no, you're, you're fine too. Like you're, you know, everyone kind of has their own pattern, their own thing that is pleasurable to them. And it's really cool for people to be able to start identifying that and knowing that for themselves. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'm so excited to see what you guys continue to do. I've been, I've been so excited about Linus from the beginning. Um, all right. We're going to do audience questions. So as always, please keep your questions short and them with question marks and uh, be brief so we can get as many in as possible. What's the first question? Okay. So sorry, because I hate when people do this to me, but it's a twofer. So one is for anyone that's not in the audience, do you think that you could clarify what CES is. Um, and then my second one is there was conversation way earlier about, um, advertisements in, um, in just sec tech in general. So I'm wondering for you, Emma, do you have control over the advertisements on your bustle pages? And if you did, or is there a way for you to possibly promote things, um, such as, uh, Liz, Maisha and Andrea's products or services? Yeah. So I, I promote their work through my work. Um, so any, any product that I write about is something that I endorse as a product and the company behind it. I don't have any control over ads. I don't even have any control over my headlines some of the time. Cause like, that's the reality of the internet. Um, I actually don't see ads cause I use an ad blocker. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I don't know what's up there. So sorry guys, if there's some offensive stuff. Um, I and, feel like bustle is pretty progressive and like yeah. who they put forward. I hope so. For the most part. Yeah. I mean, it's capitalism, right? I know. Like that's, yeah. that's, yeah. it's always going to be complicated. What really, if I can add, what really matters is Google and Facebook. Uh, over 75% of companies are relying on Google and Facebook and most of the ad dollars have shifted to Google and Facebook. And right now there are lots of challenges there. And it's, uh, again, these are systemic and it really ha comes down to his risk. And there are bigger advertisers that sometimes don't want to be associated. There's lots of different reasons, but it, it, in general, we don't have a lot of transparency behind it. There's literally protests happening right now or like yesterday mm -hmm. yesterday or something at Facebook with our uh, fellow sex tech founders, Dame Products and Unbound, who are, you know, picketing Facebook right and, now. And, so that's Dame, how they, and Dame is suing the MTA. And Dame is suing the yeah. MTA. So we are at the like point of like, please let us exist and give these, us your money you know yeah let us pay you um to to expand and so that's currently the state but maybe yeah and then <clears throat> ces is the consumer electronics show so it happens so i think you know but for the audience um happens every year in las vegas it's the god i think there's like two to three hundred thousand people like tech people press um investors, like everybody who does something in tech come together to the show to see all of the new technology and all the new stuff out there. So it's really one of the, it's like the lead, it's nerdy, but it's a lead tastemaker for anything technology based where like retailers are coming in and buying or like, you know, learning about new stuff, placing orders on new products, thinking about the inventory press is coming to hear about the new stuff that's out there. Uh, there's some investors who do go to that too. So it's, it's a big deal. And so, yeah, that's why I was talking about why CES is a big deal in terms of sex tech companies previously having so much difficulty being able to be even just part of the show. Next question. Thank you guys. I wanted to ask, because this is a platform where folks often don't get elevated or don't get as much attention. If you guys can talk about either books or bloggers or writers or other folks that you want to elevate in this space that you would recommend that people in this audience or watching online should read or listen to or learn from more. Come as you are. Emily Nagowski is one of the best sexuality books that I have seen come out. Um, depending if you like activism, there's pleasure activism, um, that's come out. And, um, I believe her name is Adrian Brown, like who's like, so yeah, so, so, um, you know, amazing book. Uh, 
I would say I'm happy to have more, but depending on which kind of, you know, polyamory has a set of books, like, so people talk about Ethical Slut um, a lot. That's a great book for, for that. Um, and yeah, I'm actually writing a book on the business side of sex tech right now, and it's coming out like later this year. So I'm really excited because that, I think um, there's so many amazing sexuality books out there. Esther Perel's book, State of Affairs, is such an amazing resource as well. Um, just, that's just to name a few. Yeah. I'm recommending Faking It by Lux Alptrom to everyone right now. She's so smart. Even just follow her on Twitter. Like she, any big issue in this space, her perspective is always original and really, really well thought out. And Faking It is the subtitle is The Lies Women Tell About Sex and What It Says About Society. And she really kind of explores those topics in a just excellent way. Made me rethink fake orgasms like completely. So, <laughs> um, I have on my website uh, the five books that changed how I thought about sex. So if anybody is interested in that, but Come As You Are is definitely one of them. The Ethical Slut is one of them. Mating in Captivity. So those are three. Guess you're going to have to sign up for my newsletter for the other two. <laughs> um, and I'm also writing a book about sexual values, which I think are really important um, to start to think about, to understand. We definitely invest a lot of time and energy in coaching people about like what their business values are and what their family values are. Of course, there's a lot of talk about family values, right? Um, but sexual values are something that I think we really need to look at as a society and as individuals. Um, to that end, too, I wanted to recommend uh, Make Love Not Porn. Um, which is an amazing platform uh, started by Cindy Gallup, uh, who Liz actually just introduced me to, and I got to meet in person, and she's going to be a guest on my podcast. Um, but it's basically this notion that like sex can be social, and we need uh, representations of what real-world sex looks like. Um, so Make Love Not Porn is a platform for people to upload real videos um, of themselves having sex, get paid for it, um, but also for users to take a look at what actual sex looks like, including the fumbling for the condom and the lube, laughing, uh, crying, making out, deep, passionate love, as well as kinky sex that looks real too, because it's people with, you know, bodies like you or I <laughs> who are engaging in that. Um, so I think that's really transformative work. Yeah. So yeah, I love all these recommendations and I've, I definitely recommend, um, Emily Nagoski's book as well. Um, I guess to usually the other one that I like to add in for general audience is, the speaker who's coming next week, Mary Roach. I love her book, Bonk. You should, if you haven't read it, you definitely should read it and come go to her talk next week. Because, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's like following her on this journey where she explores all these different facets of sex and like the different people and the different work that's going on related to sex around the world. And it's just, it's a really fun read. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of something else that could be fun to recommend, it's not a book, but cool resource that a lot of people, or cool thing that people don't talk about, y'all should check out Glass Dildos, if you haven't already. <laughs> and reason being, it's an interesting, it's like, yeah, super low tech, it's the opposite of Lioness in some ways, <laughs> but it's really, it's like really, art, like when it's like a, when it's someone who's making it by hand, it's this like artistic piece. They use all these different colors. It's really lightweight. It's really safe to use. As long as you don't throw it across the room, you're fine. You know, like I know a lot of people are like, are like, oh, glass, doesn't it break? It's like, no, it's not going to break in your body. Like as long as it's made well, like find that like a good artisan who knows how to work with glass check it out. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about natural material uh, dildos and vibrators, well, dildos mostly, um, is that you can play around with temperature a lot. That too. Just putting that out there. <laughs> All right. Next question. Yeah, I'm curious if uh, sex text is currently being used or can be used to help survivors of sexual violence. Uh Absolutely. Um, and we, uh, in, at O School, we do have uh, one of our educators, uh, her, she was called Rev Pleasure. Uh, she had a master's in divinity and she was one of just the most transformative for me personally educators who talked about specifically pleasure as a way to reclaim bodies and how masturbation and using toys is often the first step to someone who is on their body recl reclamation journey. And I think that one of the problems we have is that the only real acceptable public discourse about sex usually 
usually are the darker sides of the conversation. It's about harassment. It's about sexual assault. But as soon as you try to talk about the healing aspects of sexuality, then it's not okay. But that doesn't hurt. That actually hurts people who've experienced sexual violence who, you know, may have a, uh, you know, maybe a negative view towards sex in the beginning in their journey. But some people are hypersexual and want to reclaim their body as soon as possible. And I think those people get left out because there's this assumption that, you know, with the conversations of Me Too and sexual violence, that we should talk less about sex. But what really will help is if we have just more conversations happening across ages, you know, and it starts when you're five. I was on a conservative talk show this morning uh, on Fox News. And one of the things I actually got the person to agree with me on is that you can tell a five-year-old their body belongs to them. That's the first thing and tell them medically accurate language about their genitals. Those two things alone would greatly equip generations better to protect themselves against sexual violence because we would teach them that, hey, this is your body and you're the boss of it. And we don't get taught that. I remember being a child and being forced to hug my relatives, being forced to do a lot of things. And so we don't inherently teach young people that. And so it starts as early as five. It goes through a lifetime. And absolutely, you know, pleasure and sex should be in conversations about supporting survivors of sexual violence. Yeah, I think tech in general has been supportive of disseminating more stories of sexual violence, coercion, and assault. And we should be talking more about the healing process of that because there are so many amazing, strong people who have endured some really horrific things and come out the other side. There are also people who have endured similar horrific things who are in the process of figuring out how to become those stronger people as a result of that. Um, one of the goals of my next uh, season of my podcast is to highlight stories of sexual assault and how we heal from that, both from an individual perspective and from a collective perspective. Like, what do we do on a grand scale, which is actually where Cindy Gallup's work comes in. Like speaking with her, if you don't know who she is, please Google her and watch her TED talk um, because there's an interesting intersection of technology and her sex life that has brought her to this place of creating Make Love Not Porn. But her talking about how important it is that we start discussing the intricacies of sex, that is where we to Andrea's point, like we, if we are not encouraging people to talk about sex at all, we are creating a, an environment of silence and we are supporting the fact that perpetrators can continuously tell their victims not to say anything. And people will just accept that because it's not okay to talk about sex at all. So if someone, it's just one more person telling you that this is not okay to talk about. And it's that much longer and that much harder of a process to heal. Um, when you are silenced and when you are stuffing that. So I think technology has served an amazing purpose in unearthing these stories and providing a forum for people to talk about these things in an anonymous way also, like giving people some anonymity to say, like, that happened to me. This happened to me. This is how I got through it. We're all having these conversations in a virtual space. So technology has brought us to this point. This is our last audience question. Hello, I'm um, a professional communicator and a journalism and PR person, um, and I'm a senior citizen as well. And one of the things that I always learned uh, in my field is to segment my audience. And I'm wondering if any of you are actually communicating with senior citizens because of what I understand. I'm not in a nursing home yet or assisted living, but it's it's really hot there because people are online and they are uh, using technology. And it's the kind of an audience that is not going to look for you. You're going to have to look for them. So is anybody doing anything to communicate with senior citizens? Yeah. So there's... So in my personal life, I definitely am. Like, my mom asks me questions for her friends all the time. Um, for, the, for that record. But also... Uh, there is a, an amazing educator named Joan Price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her site is called Sex at Our Age, and she gives sex advice for senior citizens, and she also uh, reviews sex toys kind of with some of the maybe mobility issues that people might have or just different ways your body changes as you get older. Maybe you need a stronger vibe than you used to, and she's really amazing doing that work. Um, do you guys have... 
Do any of you? I wanted to piggyback about Joan because she also addresses something in her new book that I think is amazing, which is um, sexuality while uh, grieving. <laughs> and that is something that obviously like our older population is going to experience to a greater degree than our younger population. I think she's filling a, a fantastic niche. Um, she's really good friends with the founder of Sex Coach U, Dr. Patty Britton, who is my mentor. Um, I know that Dr. Patty has made her presence. She's, she's basically grown. She is the mother of sex coaching, um, Dr. Patty Britton. And sh- her client demographic has aged with her. Um, she's a boomer, and that is her specialty and niche. One of the things she taught me is to certainly segment and specialize in what I know and what I feel most passionate about. And that is working with anybody of any body of any ethnicity, um, who identifies with a feminist perspective. Um, and I think boomers to a certain degree identify with that or are curious about that. So I have worked with folks, um, of that demo. Um, but another thing I wanted to mention is that I, have interviewed people. One of one of the goals of my podcast is to definitely highlight age diversity and that sexuality does not end because you've had a child or that your kids went off to college or even that you got a divorce or that you lost your partner. You are a sexual being from the time you were born to the time that you leave this earth. And there's so much power and beauty in that. And because we are such an ageist society, we rob people of age, of their sexuality, of their sensuality. And there's specific concerns for our aging population that need to be addressed. Um, so uh, I welcome anybody of any age to work with me that feels so compelled. Yeah, so actually for Lioness, it's not obvious for some people because it's like, oh, it's such a you know high-tech vibrator. Like, you know, it has to be for the young people. It has to be for the millennials and the Gen Zs, right? And I'm like, no, most one of our most major segments for Lioness is women over 40. So it's like, you know, they, they had the iPhone. We've had the iPhone for like, what, like 10, 12, 15, some, we've had, we've had an iPhone for a long time out there. And yeah, like people like of all ages interact with technology in a variety of different ways. And it was, yeah, it was the largest segment or one of the largest segments um, since our crowdfunding campaign initially, where we did a huge or sort of like outreach, not advertising, but, you know, huge outreach. And those are the people who came to purchase the product. And uh, since then, we've done, we did a project uh, with another company to learn more about the needs of people who are in their 40s, 50s, and up, uh, menopause, and all the different things that come with that. And um, yeah, and also, it's just like, yeah, it's been... Yeah, so Lioness is actually, in some ways, a product for people over their 40s and their 50s because it's something that a lot of people are interested in. They want, you know, they're if they had kids, they're going off to college. Uh, they might be at this point in their career where they're like, hey, you know, I'm finally able to, like, commit time to myself and commit time to investing in myself and my pleasure. And for some people, Lioness is part of that journey of having fun and doing some cool stuff with data and seeing your orgasm on a chart. Like it's actually really cool. Uh, so yeah, that's, there's products out there like Lioness and other stuff that that is out there for people who are in, who are over 50. Just a little history too. Um, the first sex tech founder. So like sex tech was coined by Cindy Gallup after her TED talk. But before that, Karen Long, um, had the Fiera and you had Rachel Braun Schurl, um, doing Zestra, which is like an arousal gel. And both of these founders were creating it for postmenopausal people. Mm-hmm. So sex tech was actually driven in the beginning by, by really like health focused founders. And, um, the Fiera, it was genius. Karen Long got it funded. It was one of the first investments ever to successfully get funded um, in the space and it was be, it was a fda device that was supposed to help arousal for post you know for menopausal aged um, people and what it what they did was they kind of made it a medical device it was it was a basically like a vibrator you know and things like that <laughs> like it was genius i thought i learned from that but actually just to give you know homage to those people we the sex tech founders of today people talk a lot about unbound dame lioness mm-hmm. but before this generation the first innovators were menopausal women and before before that there's also cal exotics with i think it was susan yes, it, yeah, they, yeah she still has that empire down in la uh there's also oh gosh there's someone name is slipping right now shoot yeah yeah. Uh, amy yeah. amy at pulse um lube company yep. so uh amy always jokes that like hey like the faucets dry up mm-hmm. and 
the uh, so a huge consumer of lube should be people who are you know in that stage of their life because the faucet's turned off she, she taught um Amy taught me that. And so big plug to Pulse up in Seattle. So there's lots of sex tech companies actually out there that I want to speak to that are on stage. Um, they just haven't been out there. And so please like support all those businesses. We're also seeing a lot of menopause businesses start to crop up, right? And one of the things that they offer kind of as a medical device is lubrication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, I just want to yeah. point out the original vibrators were medical devices. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, that's the end of our questions. Um, it's an informed tradition to ask all our speakers the following question. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? So Andrea, Maisha, Liz, what are your ideas? Free accessible therapy for everybody. Um, That's it. Like the whole world, everybody healthy, um, or not neurodivergent or not. Like, I think that that would instantly transform the level of empathy self-awareness like everything that we need uh humanity is we're at like the fight for humanity i feel like as sex tech and all these that we are on team human (laughs) um and i think that the key to unlocking that is therapy lots of it for everybody (laughs) all the time for free you know so that that would be mine uh for me it would be for every single person to feel comfortable discussing their sexual values, to know what those are and to move through the world confidently making decisions based on what they value most in this world. That's it. That's it. I don't even need 60 seconds. Yeah. I think for me, I feel like I've been, well, I'm creating a company and feel fortunate enough to be able to spend all this time and money and effort doing that. And I think to Maisha's point in terms of being able to have like put out information that's accessible to any individual who wants to learn about themselves, putting that out into the world can change things in ways that we can't even believe right now. Uh, Because I think a lot of the different issues that we have in terms of sex and sexuality and basic bodily autonomy are rooted in our discomfort with our own bodies and our own lives and other people's bodies and what they do with their own bodies. And if we're able to start showing that, Hey, this, you know, this is a natural human need. It's a human process that everyone experiences. It's a part of life. Uh, And we can start chipping away at these different stigmas that we have. I think that that can help address a lot of these bigger societal issues that we have that, you know, we haven't been able to address the sex stuff because, oh, it's, we don't, we're not supposed to talk about it. But that is a major part of some of these problems that we have. I think it's why we have our president. <laughs> yes. Okay, I really do. I really think that sex education is going to save the world. But um, I'm biased. So before we head out, we want to pick a winner for tonight's raffle. So let's... <laughs> Get these tickets. Everybody get out your raffle tickets tickets and check a little number. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Huh? Oh. So our number is 361126. Oh, no. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? There we go. We got a winner. Yeah. Congratulations. Yay. Taking home your own lioness. Make your own <laughs> orgasm charts. And if you make music with it, which someone did. Someone did make Liz music know. from it. Yes. Um, <laughs> make all right. sweet orgasm music. Yeah. With your <laughs> all right. Thank you, Andrea, Maisha, and Liz, for joining us tonight here at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Emma McGowan. Good night.